Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew, where we have seen growing animosities toward Jesus as he entered the holy city of Jerusalem. The first sign of resentment from the religious establishment came in the wake of his triumphal entry, where they asked Christ to rebuke his followers for carrying on. Short time later, he angered them in the temple after flipping over chairs and tables. And then he spoke several parables against them, adding even more fuel to their proverbial fire. In response to Christ's many indictments, Matthew is sure to tell us how the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders sought to lay hands on him, to seize him, destroy him, and put him to death. They just could not get over their jealousy, their fears, or their self-righteousness long enough to receive Christ. So they planned and they plotted in an effort to bring him down. Of course, in order to do so, they needed to sway popular opinion. Despite the hostility of the city's leadership at this point, the people were still very much enthralled such that every time Jesus spoke, they moved to the edge of their seats in awe and wonder. If the authorities were going to discredit him, they had to be sure that the opinion of the average citizen would be negatively impacted. One of the ways they attempted to turn the people against Christ was by placing him at the center of culture's greatest controversies. In rather quick succession, three different parties came asking questions. First, a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians, followed by members of the Sadducee, and finally, a lawyer representing the scribes. As we see in this morning's text, each group intended to put Christ on the horns of a dilemma that would bring him into conflict with the people, the government, and the theological authorities of the day. But turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22, and follow along as we consider the first attempt to catch Christ with a question of loyalty and obedience. We begin in verse 15. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Now the sending party here is likely the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews, which was comprised of men from these three major groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Now because they were the ones posing the questions, it stands to reason that they were not acting alone here, but were part of a larger coordinated effort set forth by the ruling authorities working together to trap Jesus in his words. Now the word trap that appears in the New American Standard comes from the Greek pagaduo, which taken literally means to entangle or ensnare one's prey. Luke paints the picture well, recalling how these religious leaders watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Have to understand, church, this was not some philosophical banter back and forth between friends. This was the vengeful pursuit of Christ done with cruel and malicious intent. The first to confront Jesus were the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees we know quite a bit about, but who are these Herod's supporters that they have teamed up with all of a sudden. Oh, they were a party of the Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty. And because the Herods were despised by most other Jews, those who cozied up to them were despised also for having sold out. It seems 364 days of the year, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't stand to be near one another. And yet on this day, mutual hatred for Jesus had united them. Because, as they say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These bizarre allies begin by telling Jesus how wonderful How wise, how discerning a teacher they find him. So impressed by his knowledge and impartiality, they could think of no one else better suited to answer their most pressing question. Hindsight assures us their flattery was but a cheap ploy meant to weaken Jesus' guard before their attack. And attack they did. Not with strength, or sword, 
but with interrogation. Asking on this occasion if it is lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not. Many people today try to avoid the subjects of politics and religion because they always seem to cause a division when discussed. These men came to Jesus expecting him to reconcile the two and keep everyone happy at the same time. See, this was one of the most controversial issues that the Jewish people were facing at this time. Most God-fearing Jews hated the fact that they were under Roman authority. They hated the fact they had to answer to someone else. They hated the fact they had to pay a tribute tax. And they hated the fact that Caesar had exalted himself to a place of deity. So the Jewish people either paid with great reluctance or in a good percentage of cases didn't pay the tax at all. This is the trap. You see, if Jesus spoke out in support of their position, telling them it was okay to withhold payment from the Roman government, the people would applaud him as a loyalist. But Rome would have his head. On the other hand, if Jesus told them they must pay the tax out of obedience, then Rome would be happy. But the Jewish people would label him a traitor to their cause. It's a no-win situation for him. Which is exactly why the Pharisees and Herodians were so pleased with themselves while posing their question. Yet Christ has so much more to teach them. So, rather than offer an answer directly, he asks to see a denarius, likely the most common currency used in Jerusalem, a small silver coin, similar in many ways to our more modern dime or quarter, whose likeness and inscription appears on this coin, Jesus asked them. Well, as all of them could see, it was the likeness of their Caesar. Specifically, a picture of Caesar Tiberius, who reigned from 14 to 37 A.D. Caesar designed the coin. Caesar made the coin. Caesar stamped his image on the coin. And Caesar distributed the coin to be used in a way that pleased him. So Jesus says, well, render return, give back to Caesar what already belongs to him in the form of your taxes. Is, is that an overly difficult concept to understand? I've heard some interesting takes on this from cult members conspiracy theorists and anarchists who happen for a time to be in our midst. But the average person ought to be able to grab a hold of this instruction without too much trouble. In fact, 
Paul goes on a bit further in talking about our obedience to secular government. The teaching in Romans chapter 13 that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he concludes in verse 7 of that text, Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Paul wrote those words when the government was horribly corrupt and shamefully godless. And still, obedience is required. That we give back to the authorities what belongs to them. In this case, the payment of a poll tax to Caesar is required because his image is etched right there on the coins. The Jewish people must render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then Jesus tells them to do something that's a whole lot harder. To render, to return, to give back to God the thing that has his image pressed upon it. That which comes under his domain. That, my friends, is not just a coin from your pocket. It is not an hour of your day. It's not some songs on the weekend. That is your whole life. For you and I have been made in the likeness of God. He designed us. He made us. He stamped his imprint upon us and he placed us here to be used for his purpose. What then would you withhold from him? If we believe, as Psalm 24 suggests, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and those who dwell in it, what will you refuse to give? Time? It's his. Talent? It's his. Money? Career? They belong to God. The truth is, when Jesus says, render to God the things that are God, he leaves no stone unturned because your very existence belongs to him. At the outset of their conversation, the Pharisees and the Herodians were bent on shaming Jesus. As it turns out, they are the ones who must now reflect on the lack of devotion they have shown to the Lord. Something that you and I ought to consider carefully ourselves. Yeah? The leaders pose their first question about loyalty and obedience. Then they attempt to trap Jesus 
with the question of life after death. Take a look now at verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, as the parade of opponents continues, is now up to the Sadducees, who move the conversation away from the political arena to ask Jesus about one of the leading theological controversies of the day. Turns out the issue of the resurrection was highly contested between the Pharisees, who believed in such a thing, and the Sadducees, who did not. But while this was the issue headlining their debate, their differences are much more deeply rooted concerning even the two groups' view of Scripture itself. You see, the Pharisees accepted the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature as the Word of God. Their theology was therefore based on teachings from all of those three sections. The Sadducees, on the other hand, restricted their view of Scripture only to include the first five books of the Torah. And this is where their issue with the resurrection comes from. Since from their perspective, Moses did not write anything about people being raised from the dead. Now, as historian Josephus would say a hundred years later, the doctrine of the Sadducees was always this. Souls die with the body and are no more. Well, in order to debate Jesus on this issue, they created what we might call a reduction ad absurdum. That is, an argument that reduces things to the absurd in order to... To make a point, their idea of marriage to a line of brothers stems from a Leverite law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which stipulates that when brothers live together and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man 
Rather, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. This law was designed to provide descendants for a man who died childless so that his name would go on even after his death and more importantly, that his family could maintain their property and their status in the community even after his passing. So the Sadducees say, what about a woman who marries one brother, then another brother, and then all the brothers after that? If there was a resurrection, I mean, wouldn't that become way too complicated? After all, who would she be married to when she dies and goes to heaven? You see, Jesus, it's just too ridiculous. This idea that people live on. Life after death couldn't possibly be real. Unswayed by their outstanding logic. Jesus says in verse 29, you are mistaken. You're mistaken because you do not understand the scriptures nor do you understand the power of God. I mean, throw any scenario at me you want. The problem is not with the seven brothers or the widowed wife. The problem here is you don't know the word of God. And you have drastically underestimated what God can do. And friends, we have that same exact problem today can't imagine how many different so-called theologies people want to pass off on me. Convinced that God is this way. God couldn't be like that. It's all based on opinions. Or what someone else convinced them was true. Now, I agree with R.C. Sproul, who said that in his estimation, 100% of our theological errors happen because we do not know the scriptures well enough. That's why I don't take to the pulpit and tell you three lessons I've learned about marriage or five ways you could have a better life. Where does that stuff come from? It doesn't come from here. No, every believer should strive with all his might to have a sound knowledge of this book. Lest we have to hear the same rebuke from the Lord one day. You are mistaken because you do not know the word of God. If they had a better handle of scripture, even the Sadducees, as misguided as they were, would have known better. For as Christ goes on to tell them, when these fictional characters in your story rise from the dead, when that happens, as it most assuredly will, they won't be married at all. Because there is no such marriage in heaven. Say, well, I don't like that. Okay. And still, there is no such marriage in heaven. 
Oh, but what about my spouse? I can't imagine eternity without him or her. Granted. And still there is no such marriage in heaven. I don't know how to comfort those of you who have been looking forward to seeing your beloved again and resuming your earthly relationships. But that simply does not happen. Instead, the picture that is our earthly marriage gives way to a far greater union with a real groom who is Christ. He will not be your mistress or your cheat. He will be your one and only. All of your affection, all of your devotion, all of your love and intimacy and worship will be given to him. And trust me when I tell you that when that becomes your forever reality, you will not be disappointed at the loss of your spouse. Huh? No, as one theologian put it, you can use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven. Then multiply the joy you will feel in that moment by a million times. And you still will not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for his people. Our existence will be filled with joy far, far exceeding that which the marriage relationship proves in this, our fallen world. Now, we have to realize, after discussing all of that, the Sadducees didn't really come for a lesson on marriage. Christ gave it to them anyway. Along with a confirmation of resurrection and the existence of angels, neither of which they believed to be true. And in case his brief statement were not enough to convince them, Jesus takes them to a part of Scripture that they did accept to show them there is life after death. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and says, Regarding the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I am is one of the ways God identified himself to Moses. And we typically look that and marvel at the eternality of God that is expressed in that name. And yet, upon closer inspection, it tells us something about the state of these three patriarchs as well. Not, I used to be the God of Abraham before he died. Not, I was worshipped by Isaac when he was still breathing. No, I am still the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Because though they have been deceased for thousands of years, they still live on with me. This is the answer to mankind's most fundamental question. What will become of me when I die? What becomes of you? 
you continue on for the rest of eternity. Having been resurrected either to the blessings of everlasting life or to the shame of everlasting contempt. For as Christ concludes, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. A fact that some 80% of Americans say they believe, but one that very few live differently because. Yeah? They came to ensnare Jesus with the question of loyalty and obedience, one of life after death, and as we see in verse 34, a question of law and priority. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, as we come to this particular challenge from the religious establishment, we must first understand what the Pharisees were actually asking. They hadn't come to test Jesus' recall that he should recite the law in some form or fashion. They weren't asking him which one was given first or which command, when written, would appear the longest. Now, the question is, what commandment is greatest in terms of importance, significance, and priority? Which commandment leads the rest in terms of principle? That's the question. To which Jesus replies by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is known in Jewish circles as the Shema, a summary statement of the first four commandments given by God to Moses way back when. Those first four commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no idols, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you will keep the Sabbath day holy as unto the Lord. But Jesus is not saying these original commands are unimportant. Rather, he realizes if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, well, then you will have already met these first four in full. And we ought to live our lives in pursuit of that. That these words would be continually on our hearts. That we would teach them diligently to our sons and daughters. That we would talk of them when we sit in our house. When we walk by the way when we lie down and when we wake up. All to the glory of God. We ought to live our lives in pursuit of that along with the second commandment that Jesus offers, a summary of the final six. 
to honor your father and your mother, to refrain from murder, adultery, and theft, to bear no false witness against your neighbor, and to covet not. Again, Jesus is not superseding those six. He's simply saying that when you can love your neighbor as yourself, all of these individual stipulations fall nicely into place. The lawyer came to test Jesus' spiritual and scriptural discernment. By responding this way, Jesus proves he not only knows the words of the commandments, but also their intent. The first four having to do with our adoration wholesale of God. The last six, our relationship to other people. And evidently, that satisfied the man who brought the inquiry. Though Matthew does not include his response in his text, Mark records the lawyer's words of affirmation for us. As though Jesus needed his approval, the scribe said to him in Mark chapter 12, verse 32, Right, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. It seems like this guy's got it. Of all the accusers, the scribe looks to be the one on the move toward Christ. And Jesus affirms that in a way, telling him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. But what does that mean? A few more memorized verses and he'll gain access? A couple more worship services attended? A few more dollars in the box? What does Jesus mean? You are not far from the kingdom of God. I think he's referring to those all-important 18 inches. 18 inches, which is the longest of all distances to span and the greatest of all distances to negotiate. The 18 inches that separate your head from your heart. Like so many in our own midst, this guy knew the words. He was well-read, he was well-versed, he was well-spoken, but it appears he's still that far away because his knowledge is not changing the devotion and the affections and the trajectory of his life. And John Pope Piper once wrote, Jesus always meant for truth in the head to awaken passion in the heart. And until it does, friends, you remain 18 inches away from eternity with Jesus Christ. That's what God always intended for the Shema. Imploring in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, that these words which he has commanded be upon your heart. 
And we can talk all day long about this sin and that one, ranking them as we wish. But it seems to me that if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, then the greatest transgression we could be guilty of is our failure to love him like that. Won't you render to God what is God's? Won't you give him everything in your life? Won't you love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? God will not be satisfied, nor will you be sanctified until you do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the confidence we can have in your son, Jesus, that though tempted and tried, he stood the test. His word rings true. He knows all, and more than that, Lord, he knows our hearts in it. Understanding these questions were nothing but attempts to attack and discredit. But you wouldn't let that happen. He came through every one of these accusations and every one of these situations and every one of these questions, being able to teach us even more about who he is and who we need to be. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that you would help us in the days and weeks ahead to give you all that you are due, that we would withhold nothing, understanding that our every breath is a credit to your faithfulness and your power. Lord, help us to give, to render, to return all things back to you. For your honor and glory's sake, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 